Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Sarah Dowdy. And I'm Dublina Charker-Bordy. And we have a Valentine's story that may kind of change the way you think about Valentine's Day. Valentine's Day, of course, usually conjures up images of hearts, flowers, and pretty lace-trimmed cards, but if you're from Chicago or you're a true crime buff, then it may have very different connotations. And that's because it was February 14, 1929, that the Valentine's Day Massacre, which was one of the most famous unsolved crimes in U.S. history, went down in the Windy City. It was obviously a terribly brutal crime, and it incorporated a lot of the unsavory elements in Chicago, uh, all the stuff that was going down at the same time, gangsters, bootlegging, dirty cops, and we don't want to leave out the Tommy guns. Dublina and I were talking about it earlier. I liked you said the Tommy guns are pretty much another character in this yeah, whole they're, story. Yeah, they're an extra person almost in this, but um, but we didn't get a chance to go too much into that, but they do, they do play a part here. But it all actually starts with something that was intended to make life a little more virtuous, and that was prohibition. And that's kind of like the irony of the whole thing is that prohibition is what sort of instigated this whole kind of wave of events that is going to happen here. But we have a whole podcast about prohibition. But the general gist was that in January 1920, the 18th Amendment to the Constitution went into effect. And this prohibited the manufacture, the sale, the export, the import, the transportation, all that having to do with alcoholic beverages. It didn't ban personal possession and consumption, though. So that was kind of sort of an extra side note to it. You could you could drink it if you had it. So you, if you had your own personal stash, you could consume it. You just couldn't buy it. They were just assuming that if you procured any, you'd be breaking laws anyways. Um, so... Prohibition almost immediately started a new wave of organized crime, which was centered around bootlegging. I mean, it really did start immediately. Some sources describe whiskey trucks and freight cars in Chicago being hijacked just an hour after Prohibition went into effect. And um, Katie and I did an episode on the molasses explosion. That's another sort of immediate effect of Prohibition, or leading up to it at least. People, People reacted quickly. Yeah, I've even seen Prohibition described as the engine that drove the gangster era, so... Again, sort of seeing the irony here of wanting to do something good, but having it all sort of terribly ironic go terribly wrong immediately. So we should give a little background to this, though. There were gangs before this, but they were mostly more into things like muggings and robberies. And as far as business interests went, they controlled gambling and prostitution type establishments to make money. So with bootlegging, though, gangsters saw the opportunity to really turn crime into more of a business and to up their profits considerably. Along with that, though, came the inevitable jostling for territory between rival gangs. You know, I mean, Turf wars. That's basically how we think of gangs today, too. Definitely. And, and Chicago is most notorious for that. Right. It was notorious, I guess, for the outright gang on gang warfare. The gangs there, they didn't even really try to hide it or conceal it at all. The gangs attacks on each other were often really horrible and gory, but it was mostly just gang on gang violence. They generally avoided attacking just your normal average citizen on the street, um, also avoided attacking cops. So I guess as a citizen of Chicago, it w- may have been easier to kind of distance yourself from it a little bit. Um, and from a 
the police's point of view, they weren't really making things too hard on the gangsters anyway. Local mobs often paid off cops to look the other way while bootleg alcohol shipments were on the move. Some cops even participated. They would get paid off and they would ride on trucks to make sure that the alcohol actually reached its destination the way it was supposed to. And some politicians were in the pockets of gangsters, too. So those of you who watch gangster flicks, you're probably familiar with this whole dirty cop, dirty politician thing. But for for those of you who like romantic comedies, this is just a little background (laughs) to set the scene of what was going on during these so-called bootleg wars. But we should give you a little more background, too, on this. It's not all about bootlegging. There are also ethnic hostilities involved. That was a really big part of the rivalries between the gangs. And um, there were two main gangs in Chicago. Obviously, there are many, but two of the major ones, one was on the south side, and it was an Italian gang. The other was on the north side. It was an Irish gang. And in the early 1920s, a guy named John Torrio became the leader of the south side Italian gang. And he originally came from New York and was part of the Five Points gang there, which had Tammany Hall connections. He probably heard of the Five Points gang before. Uh, but it didn't take him long to start to really get into the Chicago mob scene and make a pretty big impact there. He worked for the Chicago gangster Big Jim Colosimo as his business manager and um, really started to build his name from there. Yeah, Big Jim Colosimo, we should probably say he was kind of an old school gangster of the gambling and prostitution variety that we mentioned before. So that was sort of his deal. And and uh, Torrio worked for him. After Prohibition, he was one of the first to really try to organize this whole underworld of gangsters. And so many thought of him as quote, the thinking man's criminal. He really wanted to make the most of prohibition from a business standpoint. So that was his whole thing. He wanted to actually avoid strife and bloodshed. His motto was, there's plenty for everyone. And he wanted to work with gangs. He really worked with them to divide up the territory so that everyone got a share of Chicago's bootlegging profits. So So, sort of modernized things. Yeah, and kind of the opposite of what you think a gangster would be doing. Yeah, exactly. And he's pretty important, though, not just for this uh, ushering in this new era of gangsterdom, but because he brings in another young gangster from New York City named Al Capone. You and may have heard of him. You may have heard of him. And um, yeah, he takes Al Capone under his wing and Al later says, quote, I looked on Johnny like my advisor and father. So you have the the established gangster and the gangster in training and they make quite a, a pair indeed. At the same time, though, there was sort of a similar kind of thing going on on the other side of town. Torrio's counterpart on the north side was a guy named Dion O'Banion, and he was a roughneck who'd grown up in Chicago's Little Hell neighborhood, which, for those of you who know Chicago, is now the area where Cabrini Green, the public housing project housing complex, stands. And O'Banion, like Torrio, had a couple protégés of his own. Uh, They were Jaime Weiss and George Bugs Moran, and... Perhaps kind of strange for a gangster, for a tough guy. This was something interesting of note about O'Banion. He had a passion for flowers. He was part owner of a flower shop called Showfields, and he really loved to serve customers and apparently could be found on any given day making flower arrangements. He also provided flowers for these lavish gangster funerals, um, which sometimes these funerals were described as being so huge. They were like funerals fit for kings. And sometimes they had up to like $100,000 in 
in flowers. Yeah, Dublina, you mentioned you were starting to watch The Wire. This mm-hmm. definitely reminded me of The Wire. These elaborate funerals and elaborate floral displays. But um, I guess it, it helps tie things in a little bit to Valentine's Day. It does. <laughs> Passion for flowers. I'm glad you brought that up, Sarah. We're not com- <laughs> totally coming out of left field, but... Again, we have to go sort of in a negative, non-lovey-dovey direction uh, to say that there was some trouble that did start um, around this time when O'Banion, he went to war with the Italians, basically. He offered to sell Torrio half interest in something called the Sieben Brewery, which was one of his interests that that O'Banion owned. And he was responsible for getting Torrio basically caught in a police raid as this deal was going down. On top of that, he ended up keeping the $500,000 that he made off of this deal. So not a very friendly gesture towards his gangster leader counterpart there. Yeah, and I think you were saying earlier his motives were a little unclear in all of this. Yeah, he was apparently tipped off about this raid beforehand, which was what was sort of sketchy about the whole thing and why Torrio ended up getting so mad about it. Um it, it obviously wasn't a coincidence, but we can't really figure out, I guess, today whether O'Banion just thought it was funny or if he just wanted to see what would happen. I mean, it's kind of unclear what he really wanted to do. Um, he probably just wanted to mess with Torrio and, um, you know, kind of put his rival gang member in a in a bad place because apparently O'Banion didn't really have any previous charges at this point, so he wasn't going to get in trouble. But for Torrio, it was a different story. So. Yeah, well, and it certainly... Um, won him no friends. And on November 10th, 1924, three guys walk into Schofield's flower shop on North State Street, um, saying that they want to pick up a wreath for the funeral of Mike Merlo, who was a prominent member of the Italian community. And when one of the guys reached out to shake O'Banion's hand, seems like a pretty nice thing to do, doesn't seem violent or were scary. Um, it turns out that he was just trying to keep O'Banion from reaching for his own gun. Apparently, he kept multiple guns on him at all times. Um, and then the other two guys pull out their guns and shoot O'Banion in the flower shop six times. So certainly, whatever O'Banion's intentions were towards Torrio, Torrio did not much care for him. No, he obviously did not like that. But on the bright side, if you want to look at it as a bright side, <laughs> O'Banion's funeral was apparently the most lavish that had been thrown for a gangster yet. And Capone sent a basket of roses, kind of a cheeky move, as we discussed earlier, Sarah, but he sent a basket of roses signed from Al. So. Yeah, real nice guy. <laughs> but this was sort of, I guess, the whole um, event that set off the chain of events that will lead to the main story, the Valentine's Day Massacre that we're discussing. Because right after this happened, retaliation soon followed. Jaime Weiss, who um, he ended up taking over for O'Banion, that's his protege that we mentioned before, and in 1925, he did, in fact, attack and severely wound John Torrio, who was then forced to retire. Torrio left Chicago and turned over his empire to Capone. So now we have Big Al versus Jaime Vice. And after that, Capone and Vice, their mobs were at war, essentially, for a couple of years. And some sources say that Capone tried to make peace with Vice, you know, get it so they could get back to business and stop fighting each other. But... Um, Vice was sort of a crazy guy. He was homicidal and apparently just kept on rebelling. They couldn't work out any sort of mob treaty. Yeah, so 
Eventually, because he had to, I'm sure, Capone ordered Weiss's murder and had him gunned down with machine guns on North State Street, pretty much right where O'Banion got murdered. Um, it was right in front of Showfields because that's where Weiss had kept his offices, right above the uh, the flower shop. And that was on October 11th, 1926. And I think this stop ordering my flowers from there at that point. Yeah, <laughs> I think I would switch office locations, but he did not. Um, and so he met his death there. He met his demise. But this left George Bugs Moran in charge of the Northside gang. So now we've kind of, uh, hopefully you guys aren't too confused, but we, now we've kind of set up all the characters, I think, in this in this little play we have going on here. Um, and Moran, he was kind of a thug, too. Yeah, he was definitely better known for his brawn than for his brains. He wasn't he wasn't the leader that um, his predecessor had been, O'Banion. And he got his nickname Bugs from his temper tantrums, too, which is not exactly a quality you want to see in the leader of a gang like this. Or so, leader of anything, for that matter. Yeah, exactly. So even though there was... A peace treaty organized in 1926 between the leading gangsters. It really didn't look like peace was going to happen because it was. It seemed pretty likely that Bugs Moran would eventually go off the handle himself. Yeah, I mean, these two sides just kind of kept going at each other. Moran and, and Capone. Yeah, yeah, Moran and Capone, the North Side Gang and the South Side Gang. And so it just seemed like they were going to keep trying to take each other out and antagonizing each other as much as they could. And sure enough, even during these years of relative peacetime, Moran continued to kind of try to stir up trouble with Capone and his gang. For example, he gave a kind of silent support to a Northsider named Joe Aiello, who tried to assassinate Capone a few times. So he wasn't the one who was doing the assassination attempts, but he was sort of tacitly encouraging, encouraging them, yes. Um, another thing, a couple of his own men, Pete and Frank Gusenberg, who will come up later, they wounded one of Capone's best guys, one of his right-hand men, um, a boxer-turned-gangster named Machine Gun Jack McGurn. Yeah, so Moran was certainly... Not on Al Capone's Valentine's list, if we're going to make a little joke about our title here. Um, but he he was on another list. He was. And this is where we start to kind of get to the heart of our story. In early 1929, Moran was offered and he purchased a shipment of Canadian old log cabin whiskey, which had supposedly been hijacked from Capone. And this transaction went off so well, it went off pretty much without a hitch, so that when the same people offered Moran another shipment for a great price, he agreed to it, of course. And that delivery was supposed to happen at 10.30 in the morning on St. Valentine's Day. And Moran himself was supposed to be there to oversee it, and it was to take place at SMC Cartage Company, a garage on North Clark Street, which was basically a depot for Moran's bootleg operation. And he kept some of his trucks there and things like that. Yeah, so we're going to set the scene for this Valentine's Day morning. It was cold and dreary and gray, and there were seven guys at the garage by about 10 a.m. Six of them were part of Moran's gang. There were the Gusenberg brothers, who we mentioned earlier, Pete and Frank. There was a bootlegger named Adam Hayer, a speakeasy boss named Al Weinshank, 
and a safecracker named John May, who did a little side work for Moran as an auto mechanic, and finally a bank robber, James Clark. But then there was another guy there, too, who was not part of the gang. He was Dr. Reinhardt Schwimmer, who was an optometrist. Um, he was not there performing medical exams. No, he was, not at all. He was just like a, a friend, kind of a gangster groupie. He would hang out with these tough guys and brag to, to his own friends about it. Uh, sort of a, a strange addition to the party, I'd say. Yeah, strange idea, I think, just a, someone who wants to hang around this kind of underworld scene. But and then go check out people's eyes later in the day. Weird. Yeah. <laughs> um, or maybe you were checking out the eyes first and then going to the gangster <laughs> stuff. Maybe this was just a random morning activity. Anyway, also in attendance was Mage German Shepherd, Highball, and he was there tied to an axle of a truck. So, again, just sort of setting up... Um, what this morning looked like. Now, all of these guys, except for May, who was dressed in overalls, working on trucks, of course, um, they were all dressed up in suits and ties. Around 10.30, a black Cadillac drives up outside the garage. Four or five men get out of the car at this point. Um, eyewitness accounts differ as to how many people there actually were. You'll see it described both ways, I think, depending on what you read. Um, a couple of the men were dressed up in police uniforms, and the others are in clothes that may resemble what detectives might wear. They were wearing sort of top coats or trench coats. Um, one description has one of the guys at least wearing a fedora. So more normal clothing, not uniforms. And when they walked into the building, the seven men inside, this is what people generally believe, is that they must have assumed it was just a routine police raid because they appeared to immediately just comply with whatever they wanted. They were asked to line up against a wall, and they did. So at that point, the police, or at least the men who they thought were police, opened fire on them with two Tommy guns, and they emptied 70 bullets into them that way and then finished off with a few more shotgun blasts. So a really violent, violent scene. Neighbors say that they heard popping noises and pneumatic drills and sounds like a car backfiring and a dog howling. So poor Highball is in there watching all of this. Going through all of this. And so when the men walked out, these four or five unknown men, it looked like just cops leading out plainclothes guys, the the men who looked kind of like detectives when they were walking in, uh, leading them out possibly at gunpoint like they were in custody. And then they all got into the car and they sped away. And at the end of it, six of the guys were dead, but miraculously, one of them had survived. Frank Gusenberg, he was still alive, just barely. And this is where the story starts to get a little weird. Yeah, this is the point where accounts of what was said and the details really start to get murky. Cops question Gusenberg, like he's lying there with full of bullets and, and they're trying to ask him what happened. Some accounts say that he said, nobody shot me. And the assumption here is that he was sticking to the gangster's code, which was basically you don't snitch on other gangsters, even don't if it's someone right, don't say a thing, even if it's someone from a rival gang. Other accounts, including an account that's come to light recently, say that Gusenberg actually said cops did it. So we'll talk about that a little more in a minute. Frank dies, however, a few hours later in the hospital and they never learn anything else from him about it. Moran, in case you forgot about him in this story, he never shows up that day, even though he's supposed to. It's said that he was seen in the area before it all went down, that maybe he drove by, saw the cops getting out of the caddy and just assumed it was a normal police raid. Got out of there. And got out of there. Um, but needless to say, he did not die on that day. 
So that leaves us with the question, who who did it? Who's responsible for the St. Valentine's Day massacre? And some people believe for a while that it could have actually been the police, that these people weren't just in police costumes. They were some sort of rogue police outfit. Um, because after all, they did look like cops. They were driving what looked like a cop car. Uh, and we know that not all of the cops in Chicago at this time were, were straight. Knowing most of the backstory that we know now also, too, though, most assumed at the time that it was Capone. He himself, though, had a rock-hard alibi. He was just sunning himself in Miami, catching some rays, and he owned an estate down there. So he was not even in the state, nowhere in the area. So that was how he got himself sort of out of it. But still, it could have been his guys. It could have been his guys. And I think the general consensus now is that machine gun Jack McGurn actually organized the whole event for Capone um, and perhaps may have even been a shooter. Here's just some examples of reasons that people might think this. He had been spotted in nearby Lincoln Park and even outside SMC Cartage that morning. So right outside the building where it happened. It's pretty suspicious. Right. McGurn claimed, however, that he had appropriately for Valentine's Day, been in bed all morning with his girlfriend, who was a very attractive blonde golfer named Louise Rolf. And the papers ended up christening her the blonde alibi after this. And so that's where that famous moniker comes from. I'm sure some of you have probably heard it. But because of this blonde alibi that he had, he was never really brought to trial, even though um, he was charged with the crime and a lot of people thought it was him. Yeah, so while most people still assume... Capone, some of those guys did it. 82 years after the fact, there's a new theory about who organized the Valentine's Day Massacre. And it came out of a recent book called Get Capone, which was released last year by the Chicago author Jonathan Eig. And it claims that this entirely different mobster, one not connected to the North Side or the South Side gangs, a guy named William White, also known as Three-Fingered Jack, was the one who was responsible. Yeah, apparently one of Moran's guys killed White's cousin, a guy named William Davern Jr., in a bar fight. And the Valentine's Day massacre was supposedly White's revenge for the whole thing. The really convincing part about this, here's what it is. William Davern Jr.'s dad was a Chicago police sergeant, so White could have easily arranged to get some of the props, police uniforms, the car, all of the police paraphernalia in general, from him. Also, Ike points to the sheer kind of violence of the event. It seems like a really passionate killing rather than a business-like one, I guess. Yeah, you have kind of unimportant players killed in it, caught up in it. Right. And another point he brings up is that the police talked to eyewitnesses who claimed that a person who was driving the black Cadillac was missing a finger. Like three-fingered Jack? Just perhaps? like fin- three-fingered Jack. Um, and he also just points out If Capone wanted to kill Moran, why was Moran allowed to live after that? And I think that's a great point, too. I mean, he knew where Moran was. And if Moran is really the one that Capone had the beef with, then you think he'd be able to take him out. I mean, he was Al Capone. Yeah. And Moran's the guy who's supposed to be there. It's, It's kind of a fluke that he's not. Right. So what evidence does Ike have of this? Um, the main thing is this letter from a guy named Frank T. Farrell, who had apparently been doing some undercover investigation of an unspecified nature at the time of the massacre. We're not really sure what that means, but that's 
his explanation for how he's involved in all this. And the letter was from Farrell to John Edgar Hoover, who was the head of the FBI at that time in 1935. So that's basically what he's basing this off of. And then he's gone and fact-checked some of these things. And that's how he's put this theory together. However, some historians have already found holes in this theory. Yeah, and the big one is that Jack White, three-fingered Jack, was supposed to be in jail during this time. Yeah, that would seem to take him out of the equation a little bit. But Ike explains this away by saying he actually told Chicago's ABC affiliate this, um, that White bribed his way out. He bribed his way out of jail to commit the crime and then got back in and was released later that year. So that kind of explains that. But even if you can explain it away, there's another issue there. The gun. The gun. Yeah, the gun involved in White's cousin shooting, the whole thing that would have set this off in the first place, actually belonged to the McGurn gang, not to Moran. So that kind of destroys the revenge motive. I don't know if I think that really takes away. If the cousin was dying and he thought that Moran had killed him or Moran's gang, then, you know, Three-Finger Jack would think the same thing. Exactly. How was he to know? Um, unless he also had access to this ballistics report that <laughs> Chicago's ABC <laughs> had access to. Um, regardless, the theory that I poses as to why this other possibility wasn't pursued, which was because investigators just wanted to get Capone, probably has some kernel of truth to it. Citizens in general at this time were really shocked by the massacre. There were really graphic photos of it published in the paper. And although these gang slayings were really nothing new, the massacre really made it seem like things were getting out of control. So it hardened public opinion against Capone at that point. Yeah, and Hoover also took office the same year of the crime, um, a Less than a month earlier, actually. And he wanted to try to make an example of Capone. And eventually, they ended up getting Capone on tax evasion pretty pretty famously. There's actually been a previous podcast on that that Candace and Josh did. Um, so they stuck him with an 11-year sentence. He was eventually released in 1939 after spending a little time in Alcatraz, and he died in 1947 at age 48 from complications from syphilis. So um, pretty, pretty out of it by the end. Right. And Moran's career went downhill after the massacre, too. He was reduced to smaller bank robberies and ended up spending time in prison actually for a couple of them and eventually died in prison in 1957 of lung cancer. Not to be outdone, Machine Gun McGurn kind of went downhill after that as well, after Capone's arrest especially. His clubs closed during the Depression, and he ended up a small-time drug dealer, so he fell pretty far. And in the end, he was gunned down in a bowling alley in 1936 and left His dead body was left, actually, with a comic valentine in his hand, and it read, You've lost your job, you've lost your dough, your jewels and handsome houses, but things could be worse, you know. You haven't lost your trousers. I like that. You probably have to imagine it said in this kind of tough guy gangster (laughs) accent to make the rhyme scheme work. But But that's not very valentine-y. No, not a, again, not a nice thing to do. Mm Mm-mm. As for the bootleg wars, though, they pretty much ended with the re-legalization of liquor in 1933. But mobs, they stuck around. Definitely. Um, labor and business racketeering sort of came in to replace the, the trading of alcohol, legal alcohol. And mob leaders, they had seen how this greater cooperation among them that Torrio had kind of pushed them towards. They saw how this actually helped them get bigger profits. So this led to an organized crime syndicate and the mobs that still stick around to some extent today. Yeah, you probably saw them on the news a few weeks ago. 
I think so. It's the recent bust, so we're still out there. So I guess that's it for our pleasant Valentine's story today. Yeah. Happy Valentine's Day, Happy y'all. Valentine's Day, everyone. We'll come up with a love story soon to make up for it. This one was just kind of hard to resist. Um, and I guess that brings us to listener mail. So we have a letter from Janet, and she says, Hi, Sarah and Dublina. I can't tell you how excited I was when I saw the Madame de Pompadour episode come up in the iTunes feed. I had to text my BFF right away to let her know. She is a fan as well. We were both hoping you would mention her tryst with Doctor Who. Did you know the Doctor snogged Madame de Pompadour? If you've never seen the show, then you should at least check out the episode called The Girl in the Fireplace. You would love it. We've gotten a lot of mentions for this episode of Doctor Who. A lot of Doctor Who slash Stuff You Missed in History Class fans out there. Yeah, so I'm glad. I mean, I had no idea that I was also, um, you know, we were helping helping, uh, unite people's love of television and history with one episode. (laughs) Well, if you would like to learn a little bit more about some of the topics that we talked about in today's episode about the St. Valentine's Day Massacre, you can look up a little bit more about how Prohibition works by visiting our homepage and typing in Prohibition at www.howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. To learn more about the podcast, click on the podcast icon in the upper right corner of our homepage. The HowStuffWorks iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes. 